0: Yeah, a copy of God's word with you. Let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter four. Moses has been called to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt, you may recall. And uh, and as you may recall, he he had some objections. He doesn't really want to go. Um, but God told him that he would go with Moses. Um, God told him that uh, the elders would believe him when he went uh, and that he would be with his mouth, that he would, he who created Moses' mouth would teach him how to speak. Uh, and beyond that, he would give him his brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece. And now this morning, uh, we come to one of those really enigmatic stories. Um, you know, this is... There's, there's a blessing and a curse to going straight through the Bible. Sometimes you hit a passage that you just don't understand, and uh, it's difficult. But we, we come to a passage like that this morning. Um, it's one of those stories that every time I read through the Bible, I read this, and, uh, and I just want to know, what is up with that? Well, I've had the opportunity to study it a good bit uh, this week, and uh, and I thought, having done so, that it would come into focus for me, and in some ways it has a bit, but uh, in other ways it hasn't. Um, our story starts simply enough. We're picking up in verse 18 of chapter four, uh, Exodus 4:18. Hear the word of the Lord. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, "Please let me go." back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So you have the scene, right? Moses took... uh, Jethro's sheep way out into the wilderness, all the way to Mount Horeb, at the edge of the wilderness that's going to become known as Mount Sinai, and there God met with him in the burning bush and called him to deliver his people from Egypt. But he can't just disappear. I mean, that might be stealing. Most likely, these are Jethro's sheep. Notice that unlike Abraham, he doesn't take them with him when he goes to Egypt, um, But he goes home, and he bids leave from Jethro, and he gets it. Go in peace. And then he gets further encouragement from the Lord. And I don't know whether it's fair to read between the lines here or not. You be the judge of that. But since the Lord had to reiterate his instructions to Moses and seems to remove one unstated objection, that the, uh, there's no longer a death warrant out for you. So it's safe, but that doesn't make, make mean it's going to be easy, and that doesn't mean that there's not going to be threats. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So notice that, that God declares Israel to be his firstborn son. Now, when Jesus bore our sins on that tree, it was as Israel, true Israel. He is the only faithful and true Israelite to ever live. And in him every other Israelite is named. Now, Moses had been plainly told what to expect when he goes to Egypt. And then something very unexpected happens, and this is that enigmatic story. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What? What? So confusing, right? I mean, okay, so here's what we know, and here's what we don't know. Well, let's start with what we don't know, actually. The ESV has tried to help you uh, with the pronouns, but, you know, that's an interpretive endeavor, and it's not altogether clear. So let me read my translation. You can compare it to the ESV, and it's not very different, um, but you'll see the ambiguity. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. Then she touched his feet and said... Well, we'll get to what she said in just a minute. But uh, who did the Lord meet? Who did the Lord seek to kill? Was it Moses or was it her son? There's no doubt that Zipporah circumcised her son. Whose feet did she touch? See, with all the hymns and the hisses, it's tough to be sure. And do notice, if you will, that Moses is not even mentioned in this little episode. Now, hold your finger there and flip over to Genesis 17, 14. Do you remember when uh, God gave his promise to Abram? Uh, he was 99 years old, right when he, you know, he tells... That tells him that Sarai is no longer going to be called Sarai; she's going to have a child. Well, right before that, he made all these promises, and he said this: established the covenant of circumcision. He says, "Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Now, who do you think God was meeting and seeking to kill? Moses or the boy? I think the most logical answer is the boy, but I can't absolutely be certain. Now, let's look at what she said. The ESV translates it, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And frankly, that's about as good as you can get with one English word. Um, It really means something like related by covenant of marriage. Um, and, and since he is her husband and, and the ESV thinks that it's Moses, you can see why they would choose bridegroom. Um, but it could just as easily be, surely you are a son-in-law of blood to me or something like that. I don't know how you, we don't really have that category in English so much. But uh, So that's what we don't know. What do we know? Well, we know that God commanded His people to be circumcised. We know that Moses and Zipporah had failed to circumcise one of their sons. And we know that God sought the death penalty for the failure. Why? Well, to understand that, you need to recognize that God is drawing, and he's about to as we go through this story, he is drawing a very clear distinction between his people, those who belong to him, Israel, and the rest. He's drawing a distinction between those who are in covenant with him and those who are not. And Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage itself, marriage itself is modeled after the relationship that Christ sustains with His church. So I don't think you should read this story where, you know, as Zipporah being disgusted with this particular aspect of her marriage to to Moses, I don't think that that's what's going on here. It, It does seem that Zipporah goes home after this, sometime after this, so so maybe they decided that it's best that she and the boys stay in Midian until the dust settles. Moses is going to be busy, but who knows? But what is circumcision all about? Why is this important? Well, do you remember how the very beginning of our study of the book of Genesis, do you remember how God told Eve that her seed would crush the seed of the serpent. It's the original gospel promise after the fall. Her seed is Israel, which is, on the one hand, the church. After all, Eve, if you remember, she takes her name because she is the, the mother of all the living. And on the other hand, her true seed is Jesus Christ, the one true man of Israel, the second Adam. And as long as the promise of his coming endured, there would be a symbol of the judgment that would fall upon him. He would be cut off. His blood would be shed. So circumcision, like baptism which replaces it, is a judgment image. Let me think about this. What does it mean when the scriptures tell you to circumcise your hearts? does it not mean to put to death the old man that remains within you? God, by the gospel, removes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And circumcision held out the promise of that until the Christ was born and cut off. Just as baptism holds that very same promise out today. This child was made a member of the community by virtue of this circumcision. He was brought into covenant with God by virtue of this circumcision. Just as your child was made a member of the community of faith by their baptism. Circumcision depicts the shedding of blood and focused on the seed. Baptism also depicts judgment. The flood's called a baptism, the Red Sea is called a baptism. It's, it's a depiction of death and resurrection, cleansing. When, when John the Baptist came proclaiming baptism, do you remember what he said? Crowds came out to be baptized by him, and he said, Who, your brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? Bear fruits in keeping repen- with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. God can raise up these stones to be children for Abraham. He says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, right? A fruitful tree will be preserved, an unfruitful tree will be cut down. You see how it's a a judgment image? And they came out to be baptized in the hopes that they would be fruitful and stand. So as Moses goes into Egypt and as God's about to make a distinction in judgment between His people and the rest, I hope this episode makes a little more sense even if we can't understand every detail of it. Now, in verse 27, we get something that's already happened. In fact, we've been told that it's happened. But now we're told of it actually happening. The Lord said to Aaron, "'Go into the wilderness to meet Moses.' So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel." Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Last week when, um, when Moses was complaining about his speaking ability, uh, God told him that Aaron, his brother, was coming to meet him and would be happy when he did. And we see that happening now. Aaron comes and meets him, and he is happy to see him if a kiss means anything. so uh, And Moses tells Aaron about the signs. They go to the elders, uh, tell the elders what God is planning. They do the signs before the elders. And look at verse 31. Not just the elders, people in general. They believe, just like God said. They believed and they worship. Now, don't get too excited about those words. It turns out, just as God said it would, they believe and they worship. Everything is a go. But we know, just as Jesus told us, that there would be weeds among the wheat in the church. We know that uh, you know not everyone who is circumcised Uh, Not everyone who proclaims themselves a a child of Abraham or an Israelite is an Israelite. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Only those with circumcised hearts are Israel. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.5 that most of those who came out of Egypt, most of them don't have circumcised hearts. But for now, this is a very appropriate response, isn't it? They've been told that God knows, that God cares, and that God has come, and so they worship. Would that they might remain so hopeful. So what's the takeaway? Well, there's not a lot of action in our passage. We did notice uh, a few details as we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's Done. We noticed that God has declared Israel to be his firstborn. Um, we noted that Christ alone really qualifies for that title, but in Christ we find our own life and righteousness. We noted that belonging to God's people is something that only happens through the shedding of blood, but that blood has been shed. And, now, when Zipporah touched the feet, that word touched is the same word that's used for applying the blood on the lintel and the doorposts in, in the Passover. That's kind of interesting. Um, and, and feet is sometimes a euphemism f- for the private part. So this image, it's full of meaning, I'm sure, but it's one of those enigmatic pictures, right? Um, It's a little tough to be confident in your interpretation. But but look where we stand now on this side of the empty tomb. These, our fathers, worshipped at the news that God was going to deliver them. You and I have been delivered. We have seen the seed of the woman cut off and raised to life. We have died in him. We live in him and we will be raised with him. So let us, as they did, worship. But the things are going to get tough for them, just like they're going to get tough for us, and if they haven't already. <laughs> but these, our fathers in the wilderness, sadly, they were not united to us by the faith that will see you through those trials. The hardships ahead are instructive and are beneficial as you walk with the Lord. Something that we take by faith. Just as we take the body and the blood of our Lord by faith as He's offered to us in the supper, just like Moses' son, we would be under the wrath and the curse of God destined only for death. But like Moses' son, we who were once far away have been brought near by the covenant covenant sealed in blood together we're united by the fact that we believe one thing all of us we are united by the fact that we believe one thing that Jesus Christ the Son of God born of a virgin laid down his life for ours and because of the power of a perfect life he was raised and exalted to the right hand of God and He will come to deliver us and bring us home. That confession is depicted before us in the supper that we share. As the body of our Lord was given for us and has now been given to us, the blood of our Lord being shed once for all is shared by all. That we, being at peace with Christ, dine with Him even as we feed upon Him. The cup is a picture of that blood that was shed for us. The bread's a picture of that body that was broken for us. But they're more than that. They're more than pictures. This is one of the means that God has established to strengthen us in our walk with Him, to encourage us in our walk with Him. Until he comes. As we proclaim the Lord's death together, we acknowledge that we are a family. That we are related to one another by a covenant, a marriage covenant. I mean, after all, marriage is based on the relationship we sustain with, with Christ. Which one's primary? We are related to one another by a, a marriage covenant of blood, if you can get your head around that. And so we are. For we being many are one bread. For we are all partakers of that one loaf. So as we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to crucify that old man, to circumcise our hearts to resist the devil, to forgive one another, to encourage one another, and to follow Christ as those who bear his name ought to, loving one another. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have been baptized into his church, if you're a member in good standing of the community of Christ, then you are invited, he invites you to feast with him If you're not a member of His community, or if you are walking in rebellion, then the Scriptures caution you against joining in this supper. This is a meal for His people. It's dangerous, just as it was dangerous for Moses' son to accompany Moses on this quest as an an uncircumcised child. It's dangerous for you to participate in the supper if you don't have circumcised hearts. Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That warning's not meant for those of us with a tender conscience. This is meant... This meal is actually for us with a tender conscience. It's meant to strengthen us and to encourage us in our walk with him. This is medicine for poor, sick souls. Come to Jesus and find refreshment for your weak and weary soul. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, let us believe. Give us that faith that holds us fast to you. We know, Lord, that it is a gift. And Father, we ask that you would help us to be diligent. Where where Moses failed, Lord, to, to raise up our children to know you, to take your covenant promises to our children with great hope and great seriousness. Draw our wandering ones, Lord. Draw them back to you. Father, we are so grateful for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, that our that our second Adam, by His one act of obedience, has brought life and liberty to us all. We ask that you would encourage our hearts now, Lord, as we as we dine at your table, at your invitation, feasting upon you yourself, as you yourself serve you your us. We, you alone are our hope and our salvation, Lord. We ask that you would turn our hearts to you in deep devotion and gratitude. Give us a hunger to know you better and complete the work that you've begun in us, perfecting us for the day of Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Savior, having given thanks for the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to disciples, as I, ministering in his, in his name, give it to you. I'm sorry, I forgot. Are you guys forward? You want me to help?